The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagan. Presenting Season 8, Collision. Collision, Part 1. Written by Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Mercedes Lackey. Vicky was beginning to feel as if she hadn't left the chair in her overwatch suite for a year. She'd certainly been sleeping in it the last couple of days, waking up to whoever was pinging her, stumbling into the bathroom for showers, the kitchen for whatever passed for food, and for coffee. Her eyes were sore, her back hurt despite her special chair, and her mouth was always dry. She couldn't keep this up forever, but there was no one else that could do what she was doing. If there had been, she would have gladly handed it off. Or would she? The old Vicky would have packed her bags and gone somewhere no one would ever find her. There were plenty of places she knew where the Thulians, or anyone else for that matter, were unlikely to look for decades. Well, the monastery for one. It had been there for hundreds of years, and the Thulians had no idea they had built their super city on its doorstep. But she couldn't do that anymore. And she couldn't hand off a job she knew she was uniquely qualified to handle. She couldn't ignore what was at stake. And she could not abandon her friends. People she loved. It had been... How long? Longer than a week, but not more than two, since she'd coordinated pulling the team out of the Himalayas. If it hadn't been for the implants and the headsets, she didn't think she could have done it without scattering their molecules across half the world, and even then, she'd had the distinct and frighteningly powerful jolt of something else lending a helping hand at the last minute. I'm going to be owing favors for the next three lifetimes, if I have them, she thought ruefully, as she made contact with the Indian army yet again, assuring them that everything was on schedule. They were nervous to the point of hysteria, and she didn't blame them. It couldn't have been easy, finding out what was on your proverbial front lawn. If it hadn't been for Gray and Herb, she probably wouldn't have lasted this long. Herb fetched what he could carry and had learned how to use the microwave, though there had been some early missteps. Gray did what a familiar always did at times of great need. He kept her steady. He supplied arcane energy, and he told off-color jokes. Sometimes she thought the last might even be the most important. This was it. The armies of the world were massed in India for war games, although as far as the world knew, there were not nearly as many troops as actually were out there now. So far as the public was concerned, it was only small portions of the armies of the Pacific Alliance— Echo, CCCP, and the Supernaut Corps had been moving in surreptitiously since everything had gotten put on the accelerated schedule. The U.S. military and Russia had had large forces on standby for just such an assault. While many had tried to shuffle off the responsibility onto Echo to deal with the Thulians, there were enough prudent and forward-thinking planners to figure out that, eventually, some real firepower would need to be called in. Pop-up attacks and flare-ups were one thing. 
taking the fight to the enemy where their strength was. That's how you won wars. Vicky just hoped that the Thulian's hubris and the disinformation that she and her counterparts throughout the world had helped spread would keep the enemy from guessing what the good guys were actually up to. It was a damned good thing those forces had been prepared and ready to go, too. If they hadn't been, there wouldn't have been any chance to assemble them and have them where they needed to be in time. Now, there were no less than three U.S. Navy battlegroups in the Bay of Bengal. Tens of thousands of ground troops, entire fighter wings and combat aviation brigades, and what looked like an all-star collection of special operations forces from around the globe were all gathered at a staging area in the northeastern corner of Uttar Pradesh where India, Nepal, and Tibet all met. It was impressive, to say the least. The government of Pakistan was overtly making saber-rattling noises at India and its allies, and covertly sending in troops of their own. Pakistan knew damn well that if the Thulians started marching, Pakistan would become pavement, maybe a giant airstrip. Today was the day, and the clock was counting down the last couple of hours. Would I have tattled on Savior instead of helping her if I'd known then how freaking big Ultima Thule was? Hindsight was always twenty-twenty and Vicky often woke up from her uneasy naps feeling racked with guilt. I don't know. How long would it have been before the Thulians launched another huge attack? Weeks? Months? Never? I can't predict these bastards. It's like they're following contradictory orders. Well, they were freaking aliens. I suppose it's fruitless to try and figure out how they think. For all I know, this is how they make war on their planet, wherever that is. Maybe they're just as puzzled by us. Vicky hadn't been in on much of the planning. That wasn't her forte. And she figured she had her hands full, first in contacting anyone and everyone who could spread obfuscation and disinformation and convincing them that they needed to do so, and second in making sure all the key players were wired up and knew how to use their rigs. She had designed the Mobile Command and Control Center, which was in a supersonic bomber. If she'd had a choice, it would have been in something with vertical takeoff ability, but this was at least inconspicuous among all the other bombers. There was nothing on the outside to distinguish it as different from the rest. She'd created a resonance rig for it that worked with her magic communications relay. Wish I'd had time to get all the calm on magic freaks, she thought unhappily. The best she'd been able to manage was magic scrambling. Hopefully, if the Thulians picked up anything, it would only sound like static. As for the disinformation, well, often enough, the enemy of my enemy held true, and even some of the worst warlords and crime figures were not at all keen on becoming Thulian paste. Working through her parents at the FBI, clandestine and downright illegal lines of communication had been worked, and worked hard. She was glad she hadn't had to do most of that. She'd probably have been throwing up at the thought of who was going to be briefly on their side. A lot of her special headsets had gone out too, and she hadn't been told to whom yet, other than that the infill teams, and others, would get them. 
They told her how many were needed, which had been about five times more than she could actually make in the short time she was allotted, and she had said so in no uncertain terms. They hadn't liked that. But she'd made an analogy with the first atomic bombs that at least had been understood. I've only got so much in obtainium, she'd said sharply. So you get that many and no more, and right now the elves mining the stuff are on strike. There had been grumbling, but acceptance. A shortage of a supply, they understood. That she, and only she, could make the things. They would never have accepted that. There were new monitors in here as a consequence, and they were starting to come up live. The supernauts had refused a direct link. They were autonomous as far as she was concerned. She assumed they'd answer the orders of whoever was in the hot seat, but maybe not. Like a barbarian horde, probably they'd just do what they wanted to, and you'd have to work around that. They were under workers' champions' purview, so hopefully he'd keep their destructive tendencies focused. There was a quick beeping chime from one of her monitors. Ah, oh, the infill teams are coming up. This was where she was going to do most of her work, when it all came down to cases. Team Red, up. That was Molotov, Marks bless him. Playboy off the field, steady as a rock on it, and after the experience in the first infill, she knew that he trusted her. He probably would never say as much, at least to her face, but he didn't second-guess her any more. Progress was progress. Reading you clear, Team Red, she said. She had them all implanted now, except for the seraphim. There were no spares left. But Molotok greatly appreciated the tech, now that he had it. Team Red's mission was to find and disable whatever it was that was keeping the force field and illusion up over the valley. Team Blue, we are go. That was Bulwark. They had the same mission. Both Red and Blue would use the same cemetery port that the CCCP had left by. Red would, predictably, go left. Blue would go right. Team Earth, go. That was another Echo team, led by Corby, but holding people from Echo Europe. Team Fire, we are ready. A red Chinese meta-team. They'd follow Red and Blue in half an hour. There were a total of eight metahuman teams, all tasked with taking down the field, and when the field went down, penetrating Ultimate Thule and sabotaging anything that looked important. Nothing had been left to chance. If they lost red and blue, there was Earth and Fire, North and South, Lion and Tiger. Someone was going to get those fields down. Please, oh gods, let us not lose anyone. Or at least not anyone I know. She felt briefly guilty for the thought, but couldn't dwell on it now. The first metahuman teams would also be supported by a collection of the best special operations force teams the world had to offer. By allied agreement, the first to go in would be from the United States. Army Rangers, Green Berets, 1st SFODD, popularly known as Delta Force, and several detachments of SEALs. From around the globe, there were both the UK and Australian SAS, Canadian JTF-2, Chinese PLA-SOF, 
German GSG-9 that had asked specifically to be included, Spetsnaz and VDV from Russia, and naturally, Indian Gatak force troops. Initially, there had been a huge fear about the conflicting command structures involved with so many disparate forces, but somehow it had all fallen together. Apparently, the head honcho for this entire operation had been able to rope everything together, put the organization in place, and get everyone to nod their heads north and south on it. It was a feat that impressed her. In any other context, she would have called it miraculous. Then again, she knew all about this guy. He had a metahuman ability that had never been identified before, although she strongly suspected that Alex Tesla's father had had it, given how quickly he'd been able to form Echo after World War II. The mystery man was a supreme tactician. That didn't seem to adequately cover his metahuman ability, but it was the core of it. Moves and counter-moves, strategy, all of it came more than naturally to the man in charge. He seemed to be able to read people, realize their strengths and weaknesses, when they would need help and in what instances, how to best utilize them. What really made it all work was, well, him. He was never an overbearing commander, but instead knew just the right amount and kind of pressure needed to get his subordinates to not only follow his commands, but trust him implicitly. It didn't hurt that he was a natural charmer to boot. Confident and humble, without being overly self-deprecating. And one more thing. Something intangible. Something quite possibly metahuman. Something, oddly, Dominic Verdigree had. An amazing charisma that drew people to him and brought a level of automatic trust. It even seemed to work over comlinks. The dingus that opened the portal was staying outside the field. The portal would be opened for no longer than it took the teams to dash across. It would close immediately. Thirty-one minutes later, it would be opened again. Then twenty-eight minutes after that. Then fifteen. Nothing predictable. The last team through would take the dingus with them and leave it concealed near the first grave they encountered. Tesla generator pulses would be timed to match the portal openings out there where the war games were being held. Hopefully, the Thulians would think that was causing a glitch in their system. She ran through all the away team feeds, at least the ones that were hardwired with implants into Overwatch 2, and paused when she checked John and Sarah's. Sarah was still on a headset. Vicky still didn't dare try and interface with whatever it was that made her tick. But the feeds she did get from Sarah were eerily in sync with the ones she was getting from Murdoch. Heart rate, respiration, biofeeds, nearly identical. The hell is going on with those two? She hadn't dared probe the magic, if you could call it that. The two shared either. Celestial in origin, that was all she could, or dared to, verify. As for the Overwatch 2 implants Johnny still had, something was going on with those, too, but at least they weren't cutting themselves off from the network. More like, something there was filtering what she got. She was still getting exactly the same data, but she sensed something hovering over the link, watchfully. 
Not going there. Don't need a guide or a roadmap. You just stay over there and feed me what I need, and we'll be fine. She did have to wonder what was going to happen when John met Delta, if he did. He had been Special Operations himself, first Rangers, then Delta. Did they know him or about him? Would he run into someone he knew? It was a pretty closed community. And what was the meeting going to do to him, even if there was no recognition by either side? Well, he knew Delta was going to be there. He was a big boy. Still. Overwatch, open John Murdoch, she commanded. Bluebird of happiness to Earl Smasher. You read? Murdoch here, John said with a chuckle. The commissar put you up to calling me that, or is this your bright idea? We are not on the clock yet. I'm being my usual cheerful and sarcastic self. How goes? John glanced around the glorified barn. It was hard to even call it that. Stacked stone walls, dirt floor, and a corrugated steel roof completed the picture. It wasn't nearly big enough for their purposes, but then again the coalition had commandeered several of them. The entire room was filled with tables, whiteboards, and charts, with people squeezed in between them all. And weapons. Assault rifles and battle rifles, grenades, grenade launchers, RPGs, enough ammunition outside under tarps and camo nets to start and finish World War III. The entire room was a flurry of activity, despite the cramped conditions. Team leaders gathering up their squads, aides running around to update maps and pass on messages, and then, of course, all of the various metas gearing up. Each individual team seemed to be running mostly the same weapons, for those that carried them. There were several individuals with some more exotic offerings, but for the most part, things were kept standardized. John himself was wearing web gear to hold all of the magazines, grenades, and medical supplies that he would need, not to mention mission-specific gear, like explosive charges to use on whatever was powering the Krieger shields. It seemed like the rest of the CCCP was traveling as light as he was. Ammo was the heaviest thing all of them were carrying, since they figured they'd need a lot of it. But their main goal was infiltration. Getting in, breaking what needed breaking, and then helping the main forces in taking the city. It was going to be goddamned bloody. It's kicking right along. I figure we ought to be ready to roll in 15, judging by everyone's progress. He took a moment to move off to the side, out of everyone's way. How are you holding up? Don't worry about me. I have caffeine. I worry about everyone. It's one of my hobbies. John looked up, noticing that Molotov was calling together the red team. Time for me to go. I'll check back in soon. Copy? There was a moment of hesitation on the line. Any issues with you and Delta I should know about? John paused, thinking. Mm, shouldn't be. Everyone's a professional here. Afterwards, I just don't know. 
We'll have to see how it plays out. He had noticed a large group of Delta operators when everyone was first arriving. It had given him a start, even though he had known they would be there. A lot of different feelings had surfaced because of that. Fear, longing for the familiar, a certain loneliness that he hadn't felt in a long time. Long-forgotten things. John had done his best to tamp them down for the moment. The job had to come first. They wouldn't have a second shot at this. Do me a favor and just fly the hell out of there if you get a hint of trouble out of them. All right? Roger that. I don't anticipate it, but I'll keep my head on a swivel. Murdoch, out. John turned in time to see Red Savior 2 duck through the low entrance, beelining for her people. No one from the CCCP called for attention, but everyone straightened up and faced her anyway. When she was sure that she had everyone's gaze, she began speaking. You will be having briefing from Operations Commander soon. This is my briefing to you, my wolves. She showed her teeth in something that was not a smile. It was altogether too vicious and gleeful for that. I have met Operations Commander. He is to be having my confidence. But he does not know you as I know you. She met each of their eyes in turn. This is to being our Stalingrad. No more, no less. We win here, or we lose all. Soviet Thayer, in a rare show of soberness, muttered, We'll not be like Stalingrad, Commissar. Should not be, if we are wanting to live through it. Should never again be. Just the quiet way that Pavel had spoken was enough to cause the rest of the team to share looks. If we do not win here, it will be Stalingrad as if Fascisto won, old bear, Natalia corrected, but without rebuke. There is no other option. We win or we lose all. Not just lose here, we lose the world. This is our chance to drive them back. We will seize it. Again, she looked around at them, meeting their eyes, each in turn, with a fierce glare as if she was trying to instill in them the fire that she felt. There is no one better here than you. No one. You are more than a nickel-tony team. You are brothers and sisters. You are my wolf pack. She narrowed her eyes. And I will to be very disappointed if you do not pull down the fascista jackal. Untermensch turned toward his fellow CCC peers and began pumping his fist in the air, crying, Ura, Ura, Ura. Several of the older Soviet metas, then the younger ones, and finally some of the Spetsnots and Vidivi in the barn began to echo the cry. John could almost feel how charged the atmosphere was with emotion the raw current of everyone's will. The other teams in the crowded building turned to stare. John thought he saw just a moment of envy in the Chinese team's eyes. It was heady, to say the least.
Finally, the shots died down when Natalia put her hand up. That is all. I will not be giving you orders, except for that. You already have all the orders you need. Strike for the throat, my wolves, and come back with the blood of the fascista hot in your belly. With a final nod, the commissar turned on her heel and walked to the entrance of the barn, leaving the teams to finish their preparations. Molotov was the first to break the relative silence in the barn. We lift in tent, Overich. Final inspection, and then we are moving out. Get to it. John felt Sarah's eyes on him. It was an actual sensation, like the gentle caress of a hand on his cheek. He turned to meet her gaze. Her eyes were... different. Not the pupilless gold of her former self, nor the ordinary human deep blue, but blue with a flicker of gold deep inside. The rest of the team dispersed, doing their final checks on their gear and making sure that everything was ready before the team stepped off. John approached Sarah at the same time that she stepped towards him. We are not wolves, she said softly. Not in the way she means it. John thought for a moment, taking her hand into his. No, we're not. But we're not sheep either. And this is war, darling. We've got lives depending on us. A whole world, if not worlds. He held her hand up to where they could both see it. I'll never let anything happen to you again. You know that, right? She didn't smile. But she did hold his hand tighter. And... I will never let anything happen to you. She paused and thought. We must do what we must. But we must not be vengeful, yes? Looking for revenge. What is it that the Chinese sage said? You must dig two graves. You're right. Darling, you know me. Who I was, what I did. There are a lot of guys like me here today, about to help us on this job. That's a good thing. It's not about emotion, it can't be. It's about the job. If it starts getting away from that, people start getting hurt. So, he sighed deeply. We do the job. We make sure everyone else can do their job. But it ain't gonna be easy. She held his hand to her lips. We must do what we must, beloved. Trust in me as I trust in you. He grinned lopsidedly. Well, that's the easiest thing in the world for me, love. No, I mean, trust me. 
completely. There are things you are holding from me. Her eyes searched his. There is not much time, and we must be as one if we are to succeed in this undertaking. John's breath caught. She knew. Well, shit, of course she knows, Grunt. After what both of you have been through, how couldn't she? You're right again, darling. He took her by the elbow, leading her to the only quiet corner of the barn, a spot where a forlorn little table stood with now-drained and cold coffee urns, where they wouldn't be run over by all of the commotion. I've been getting new... I don't know what to call them. Senses? I've been able to read people better, see things more clearly. I've never been one to miss details, but now... Now, this is something else. I mean, like, beyond, even with my enhancements. Her eyes continued to search his. Are you anticipating actions? Not as in something you think others will do, but something you know they will do? And then... They do it? John became animated. Yes, it's... It's not even anticipation. I mean, with training, you get a feel for what'll happen because of cause and effect. Oh, this was more. Surety, almost. Like, you know what to do, how to do it, and when. She nodded. I no longer see the futures as I did, as the great tapestry of all that has been and everything that might be. But when someone suggests something, or I think of an act, I can see the consequences. Can you? John thought back specifically to their first incursion into Ultima Thule. It's not... always on. Uncontrollable. It'll happen when it happens. What is it, do you think? I do not know what to call it. But I know I have shared some of my powers with you, and some with Bella. Now a faint ghost of a smile crossed her lips. I think some of it happened when you came back to us, the first time, though you were not then yourself. And then, the second time, when you reawakened, divided the remaining powers equally between us. But do not fear. My heart is wholly yours, beloved. Never a doubt in my mind, love. John noticed that everyone was starting to move towards the entrance. Looks like it's time to go. You ready? As are you. She squeezed his hand, but did not let it go. 
trust. I think trust will carry us through. They held hands tightly a moment longer, then shouldered their packs and walked through the entrance. It was just past 3 a.m., local time. The lack of nearby light sources from cities meant the entire starscape was laid out above them, and the sky was so full of stars that it would make you dizzy to stare at them for too long. The Milky Way was clearly visible, not as a mere band of stars, but a great wash of star-filled light across the sky. The beauty of it was enough to momentarily distract him from what was to come. He could feel Sarah's silent awe at the sight as well. Ahead of them, on a hastily constructed airfield, were easily dozens of Echo Swifts, spooled up and ready to take off. They were in a valley among the mountains. Their staging area was a goat and sheep farm, gladly given up for the efforts by the owners, who might have looked as if they were unchanged from their herding ancestors of centuries past, but who knew all about the invasion, the second attempt, and did not want to see a third. The airfield had been laid out rather than constructed. John now saw as he approached more closely. The Swifts were VTOL craft, and they were about to fly nape-of-the-earth pilots to get the infill teams to within an easy hike of that cemetery valley. Nape-of-the-earth. In the Himalayas. This was not going to be a comfortable trip. On the other hand, at least the Swifts were unlikely to fall apart in mid-air. Each of the Swifts had a hastily made paper sign next to the loading door, with the name of the infill team prominently on it. John scanned the field, spotted red with a red star on the side of one Swift off to the, inevitably, far left of the field. He spoke softly. Overwatch open. Team Red. Waited a moment, and said, Comrades, spotted our ride. Far left, front. Sarah was already beside him, but the rest of the team soon fell in behind. Molotov, like any good team leader, made sure his entire team was on the bird before he boarded. Every op. Last on, first off. Despite his limited contact with the Russian, he liked the man immensely. He had the qualities that people looked for and needed in a leader. Once the entire team was on, Molotov looked toward the pilot of the craft. He made a spinning motion with the index and middle finger on his right hand. The pilot gave a nod, and shortly after the pilot had spoken into his mic, the craft began to lift off. It was going to be a long and bumpy ride to their DZ, but John felt ready for it. Rock and roll, he said quietly to himself. As if in answer to that, Overwatch began to play CCR into his ear. He couldn't help himself. Despite the hazard and the danger, John Murdoch reached over and squeezed the hand of the strange and beautiful creature he loved and smiled. Bella waited in the command and control center, trying not to fidget. She was waiting for the operations commander, who was not her. 
she felt the eyes of everyone else in the cramped quarters surreptitiously watching her. She was head of Echo, but command had been bestowed upon someone else, and they wondered how she was going to take that. Gardner had been with her when she'd been told. They'd sent a four-star general to deliver the edict. He had come at the worst possible time, of course. It wasn't often that Bella and Bull argued, and the general had stepped into a doozy of a fight. I don't see why we are arguing about this, Bull said. It's my team. My call. Scope is a liability in the field right now. I'm grounding her for this one. She simply isn't ready. If you don't clear her for your team, I'll just put her on another, Bella snapped. We don't have the luxury of holding back anyone. Hell, I've conscripted Spoonbender and re-upped some retirees for this. If Savior hadn't screwed the pooch and we'd done this on our schedule and not scrambling to catch the Thulians before they catch us, then sure, fine, you could have done whatever you wanted to with her. But Savior did, and we field every living meadow we can get. It's a mistake to just field anyone you can get your hands on, Bull insisted. More bodies doesn't mean squat if you have to watch over them like... She goes, Bella barked. That's it, soldier. You have your orders. And that was when the four-star had turned up at the door and the argument stopped dead and had never really been resolved. So now Gardner was about to get on an Echo Swift with his team, Scope included, and she was about to hand over command of this whole enchilada to someone she had never met. Someone who didn't know her people the way she knew them. Someone who... The door opened, and the entire complement inside the plane stood. No, leapt to attention. But the Chinese-American who entered had no insignia whatsoever on his uniform. No rank. No ribbons. Just a name tag. A. Chang. Arthur Chang? Gardner had exclaimed before Bella could say anything. Arthur Chang from... The general had nodded. He told me he knew you, Bulwark. Bella stood, but slowly, as the gentleman with the face of a Buddhist monk and the eyes of a sage approached her. He paused before her and offered her his hand. She took it. The handshake was neither weak nor aggressive. Arthur Chang, he said with a touch of formality. Call sign, Art of War. She couldn't help it. Her lips twitched a little. I hope you bitch-slapped the idiot that landed you with that call sign into next week. That is a terrible pun. He smiled fleetingly. Yes, he said simply. It is. Bella had listened carefully as Bulwark described the metahuman they called Art of War how they had both discovered their abilities while serving together in the Marines. Bulwark, first, because his was obvious. But then, Art discovered that he had something that must have been the military equivalent of Verdigree's genius. For him, strategy, 
tactics, the ebb and flow of battle. It was all instinctive. There was nothing for him to learn, nothing to study. It was all right there, in his head, without picking up a single book. According to Gardner, Arthur had been tested by every simulation, had been put in charge of one side of war games time and time again, and at greater levels of complexity, and nothing had been much of a challenge for him. Then he'd come one day to say goodbye. Now he was here again, and every single military leader had agreed this was the man who would lead in this battle. And Gardner... She stood aside and made a slight gesture towards the command chair, then picked up the headset, wired to Overwatch 1, not 2, that had been hanging off the arm and handed it to him. To be absolutely honest, sir, under any other circumstances, I'd be fighting you tooth and nail for the hot seat, she said quietly, for his ears only, although she knew that those closest to them could probably hear her. But the one person whose judgment I trust most in the world trusts you. And that's enough for me. Take care of this fight. I'm going now to take care of my people. He took the headset from her with his left hand and slowly saluted her with his right. I will take care of all of our people, Miss Parker, and will do my best to deliver yours back to you. He paused for a moment, looking to the floor before meeting her eyes again. Thank you for your trust. I know it couldn't have come easily. It wouldn't for me, at least. Bella nodded as the tension that had been in the air faded. Without another word, she made her way through the cramped command center and back out the door to the swift that was going to take her to the forward medical station, which was where she calculated she could do the most good. It wasn't as if she didn't have her overwatch implants. Whatever she needed to do for her Echo people, she could do from anywhere. But the only place she could heal them was there. And Vicky and her secrets are secrets still. No matter how much Gardner trusts Chang, I am not trusting him with that. Behind her, as the door closed, she heard Art of War speaking. All right, gentlemen, ladies, he said in a firm, commanding voice. We've trained for this long enough. Time to go to work. You have been listening to Collision, Season 8 of the Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series. Season 8 is written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagan. Music is Exciting Trailer by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast is narrated and produced by Veronica Jagan and is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives for the fourth book, Collision, is available in print and ebook in December 2014 from the amazing people at Bayon Books. For more information about the series or to listen to earlier seasons, check out www.secretworldchronicle.com. Want to chat with the authors and fellow SWC fans? Join the Secret World Chronicle group on Facebook. And 
as always. Thank you for listening.